session. Podcast Artists. The production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the Dorotheum. Welcome, Patricia Boyd. I'm really happy that we had the chance that you come back to Vienna for this session of the Secession Podcasts and the installation of your exhibition Ceiling Analysis has been quite intense, so it's good that you have this opportunity now to reflect on it in more depth. And the central element of your exhibition is a suspended ceiling, which is constructed of different layers. And I would like to start with a simple or not simple description of this sculpture so that our listeners can imagine it. How would you describe it? Well, first of all, thank you for having me back. It's, it's good to have this opportunity to reflect on the work after a bit of a pause um, the suspended ceiling is made at the same scale as the ceiling somewhere else. It's the ceiling of my psychoanalyst's office in New York. So when you first see it, there's the, the kind of width and the length of it correspond to the width and length of, a, of an actual room somewhere else. Maybe the most prominent element visually are square aluminium sheets that I've pressed into a mould so that they have the same pattern um, that's found on this original ceiling. And those sheets are suspended from a steel grid that's a kind of, the kind of armature for the work. And the grid is hanging from the ceiling in the exhibition space. So there are all of these different elements that are attached to one another the other main element is sheep wool that's only covering part of the sculpture. So it's actually sitting on top of the steel grid in certain parts. So that's a kind of description of the different elements, the different layers. I guess one thing to say would be that you can see how everything is attached. All of the screws are visible. And then you can see that the sheep wool is attached quite differently because it's just laying on top of the grid. So you can see it collapsing a little bit into the, the kind of void produced by the grid. So gravity is an element that's important. And you have conceived this ceiling or this room in a room as a metaphor for mental space. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Well, I didn't want to make a replica or a surrogate of my psychoanalyst's office. I didn't want to replicate it. I wanted to make a construction. And the difference would be something to do with that movement between something that exists in the external world and then how it gets represented internally. And I think the other important detail is the gaps that are very much a part of the work. So there are um, horizontal bars that join to form a grid. And so between the bars, there's empty space. But there are also gaps on the other axis. So between the different layers, you can see gaps. And an important consideration for me was coming to terms with the absence of a place that's no longer available to me and coming to terms with a void. So... 
You also mentioned at some point that this essay by Freud, Construction in Analysis, is very important to you. What does it mean for you? Yeah, well, in kind of thinking about the sculpture as a construction rather than um, a replica, I found this essay really useful. He wrote it in 1937, so it's quite a late essay, and he also wrote it during the war which is important because it, it's kind of about trying to find things that have been destroyed, essentially, mental things. But it must have a relationship to the fact that it was happening during the destruction of the Second World War. He's basically talking about how how does a psychoanalyst help make meaning out of things in the patient's past that are very deeply buried or even in some cases have been completely destroyed in the patient's mind. And there's this uh, quite violent image of destroyed objects that have been lost by mechanical violence, by fire and by plundering. So there's this idea that things are just completely gone and destroyed. And so then how how do you fill in those gaps? And he likens it to what an archaeologist does when they find fragments of ancient buildings and then try and piece together what the original building was. So, it, yes, it's, it, it's about finding traces of something that's gone and then piecing them back together. With an archaeologist, what's gone is, is gone, whereas with a human mind, it's still alive, it's still living, even if it's repressed it's a really kind of wonderful description of how complex the situation is between an analyst and a patient because the analyst also doesn't really know. And so, you know, critiques of psychoanalysis, even back then, I mean, some of the critiques of psychoanalysis are the same as back then, which are that the analyst has a huge amount of power seemingly because they can, uh, if the patient disagrees with an interpretation the analyst can potentially see that as resistance rather than genuine disagreement, like actually, no, that interpretation is wrong. And Freud's kind of taking up that problem and he acknowledges very clearly that the analyst doesn't know more than the patient and he kind of says that all that really one can say is and one says this again and again, time after time, it will all become clear in the course of future developments. So I guess the idea is that meaning is always in the process of being made and uncovered and is never fully resolved. As you were already describing that you were taking an existing room and placing it into the exhibition room, I was wondering about your approach to the space in general, but also to the graphic uh, cabinet in particular. Yeah, so my first site visit was probably about a year before the exhibition and it was winter and you were between video installations. So the windows had been boarded up and the walls were some kind of brown or grey, but kind of if it was a grey, it was a brownie grey. And one of the windows had been opened just so that the technicians could see while they were doing whatever they were doing in there. And I was struggling to really see the room 
because it wasn't, you know, there was very little light. And I spent a long time sitting on the floor, just watching cars drive by outside. It was dusk. There were no lights in the ceiling tracks. And this gave me the idea to invert the floor and the ceiling in the exhibition. And I'd already been working on work to do with my psychoanalyst ceiling that was different, but I kind of brought these two ideas together and that was the beginning of the exhibition. So often things start for me with quite an intuitive response to the space rather than an academic one. I don't know how else to put it. It'll be just uh, spending a lot of time somewhere and having a feeling that then translates into the beginning of an idea. I mean, personally, I do think that there are many links. Maybe you kind of always find them, but you have the grid, you also have the grid in the window. You have on this tin panels an art deco design, which of course is also crucial for the secession. One thing where there is like a main difference also is that the secession as a building is very vertical with the in its orientation with the copula on top, whereas your work is introducing really a horizontal orientation. It's about looking at the ceiling, looking up and lying down. I mean, what does the horizontal mean to you? Well, first, I'm just going to go back to what you said before, because it reminds me of things I didn't mention. So um, an important part of the work, I think, is that you go upstairs to see it. And actually, in the corner of the room, there's a door that's locked. So it's not part of the exhibition. But behind the door, there's a ladder that goes up to the loft. And then you can access the cupola. Is that what it's called? Okay. Or the crown, as I've been thinking about it. <laughs> so this is how you can access the crown of the building. And I I found that quite interesting, that the kind of the humblest exhibition space at Secession, the smallest one, is closest to the top and to the crown. And just thinking about hierarchy. And it's the room, that the exhibition space, that's the most domestic feeling. Am I right in thinking it wasn't originally an exhibition space? It was maybe an apartment? It was used at least in times as an apartment for the housekeeper, Yes. So you also have the small bathroom on the staircase, which is not publicly accessible, but still there. And it was turned into an exhibition room in the mid-80s when the building was renovated. So, yeah, you walk into the gallery and the way I've positioned the sculpture, you have to immediately stand underneath it. And it's hung at a height that's much lower than a normal ceiling. I can't remember the exact height, but maybe one meter 90 or two meters. So you're very much underneath something when you're standing underneath it. it. You have a feeling of being enclosed by it. And then when you look across the room, there's this lovely big window or long, wide window that, as you mentioned, also has its own grid just because of the panes and looks out onto a city which also is full of grids. You know, buildings are built often on a grid principle or pavement, the rectangles of the pavement. It's everywhere. But you were asking about the horizontality. 
in my psychoanalytic treatment, I'm lying down. So I have spent many hours lying down and looking up. And after some time doing that, I realized that this isn't a position I'm often in when I'm awake. And so this was a, a new perspective and opened up a new way of experiencing myself and the interaction with my analyst. The position of the patient lying down on a couch was introduced by Freud as a means of loosening the patient's defences and loosening the grip of repression and allowing the unconscious to surface a bit more easily uh, via free association. The theory is that it enables a different mode of thinking that's different to standing upright and, I guess, feeling more in command. Maybe there's something about lying down or a horizontal perspective where the subject is displaced or beside themselves somehow, or more apparently so. I wrote a sentence in the book that I published alongside the exhibition that kind of tries to address that. But there's a kind of play on lying and lying. Lying as in lying down and lying as in not telling the truth. You mentioned the book, which is an other embodiment or another take on the same ceiling. Can you tell us a little bit more about the concept of your artist book, You've, yeah, the one you've conceived for the exhibition? The initial ceiling analysis work was a frottage that I made from, I, I bought the same ceiling tiles that my analyst has on her ceiling and then in my studio made a frottage to make a kind of approximation of her ceiling. It's on tracing paper and part of it's with graphite and then pastels, so there's colour in there as well and it's all taped together. It's like different fragments of frottage that are taped together. Then when I was trying to figure out how exactly to make the work for this exhibition, I made several versions that are not the work that I ended up making. So I made silk screens, I made casts, and the book was a way of bringing all of these different versions, these different attempts, in to kind of make, make something from them. Because I found it interesting that I was continually trying to find the work by remaking the ceiling again and again and not finding it quite. So the book was a way of putting all of those attempts somewhere and making something from them. But it's based on a fabric sample book. So if you go and buy fabric for your home or wallpaper, sometimes the, the companies that produce the fabric or wallpaper make these sample books that are bound with book screws so they don't have the usual book binding they're held together in a slightly more provisional way that's the basic form for the book and it's covered in blue linen and the title of the book is ceiling blues because I found that there were a lot of blue elements in these tests that I'd made and there's a play on on words that brings in the idea of a kind of mental state feeling blue and the pages inside are fragments from all of these tests at one-to-one -one scale so the scale hasn't changed but they're just fragments so you can never quite see the whole pattern 
you just see different fragments of it. One detail I found very interesting in the book is your use of the word fragile. That's also fragmented uh, running through the book. It's kind of typical for the lettering of boxes that contain fragile items, like you'd have it on an art box where there's glass inside or something. And there's one page also where where this fragile is cut off the way that you just see part of it and then you see the writing of agile or agile, meaning vivid or mentally alert. And I know that you're kind of very precise with words, so I can't imagine this is a mistake. And I was just wondering about this and about your use of language in your work in general, how you integrate it. I know you kind of a trained in literature also. So you, um, how do you look at words as material? Well, I didn't think of agile, actually, not consciously, but I guess that would be a kind of slip of the tongue, maybe. I very intentionally used the fragile tape in the most literal way. I was feeling fragile when I made the first work and it was made on, the, the first frottage was made on very fragile material. It was made on tracing paper and it needed something to hold it together because it was made in fragments and I literally needed to find something to stick the different fragments together. And I used this fragile tape and then I also used that medical tape that you stick a bandage on with. I mean, thinking about words, something else that comes to my mind is the motive you used on the invitation card, mm -hmm. where it's also about certain parts that are blurry in this list of words and others kind of stick out. And then there also in this motive, you have, I think it's pea soup, that's kind of spilled over it. Um, so it's a very enigmatic image on one way. W what's it about? It's kind of about something accidental happening, <laughs> um, a spillage maybe, but also in a metaphorical way. There was one work that didn't make it into this exhibition that I was considering right until the very last minute that's called Waste Book. It's an alphabetized list of words that I used in a text document that I had on my phone in the first months of my analysis. I just basically use this text doc document to kind of download whatever thoughts I had between sessions. So it wasn't quite a journal because it was way more immediate and rough than that, like not even whole sentences. I just would type things in when I needed to just get it out, hence the title Waste Book. And then when thinking about turning that document into an artwork, I alphabetized it. That means that there are many, many, many instances of the word and, obviously, but also of the word me, mother, all sorts of words that are quite loaded in the context of thinking about interior, you know, one's interior world. The invitation image just literally happened by accident at lunchtime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I photographed it. <laughs> Wonderful. Taking up another idea of psychoanalysis is um, the one of imprinting, of embodied patterns of behavior. And I think in this context, the tin panels play an important role. And I'd like to go back to this kind of materiality you used there. The tin panels are kind of a, originally a mass product. 
you researched, I know this, the historical patterns and ordered them from a special store, but then you decided to make these copies by hand. Why was that important to you to kind of remake them? Partly because it was um, a physical discharge of energy into material, so it was important that I made them. Something to do with time, the kind of work, interior work that I'm interested in thinking about through making this sculpture takes time. And I wanted to make a play on the idea of patterns that repeat. And that's also in the book, quite explicitly in the text that I write. The pattern being the pattern of the ceiling, but also, you know, we all have our patterns that cause problems in our lives or, you know, open up potential as well, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Apart from the huge sculpture, there is one additional work in the exhibition, the photogravure, which you've placed beside the window. In terms of size, it's kind of much smaller. Still, I do think it's not less important. What can you tell us about this piece? It's a photogravure that I made from a photograph of an egg sitting on my lap. And I took the photograph myself, so you don't see my head. You just see my legs that are crossed and then a white egg sitting on my left, kind of between my stomach and my thigh. Um, I'm wearing jeans and the egg has a, a kind of branding on it, like the, the standard stamp that has to be put on eggs so they can be bought and sold, I suppose. So I think that the, the pose that I'm in is there's a kind of sense of availability The legs are open and the composition has this kind of V-shape, this kind of diagonal element that also, for me anyway, has a sense of openness to it. I think the thing to say about the egg is that it maybe represents potential and that it's an egg, it's an object, but it's also a process somehow. And it's perhaps a means of externalizing something that's internal. Mm -hmm. And that, that externalizing of something internal is important for the sculpture as well. The work may remind one of the photography by Birgit Jürgensen called Nest from 79. Also, from my point of view, the differences are particularly interesting. Have you been familiar with Jürgensen's work and um, how would you relate to this icon of feminism? I don't know her work or I didn't know her work um, until I was installing the show and somebody mentioned this photograph to me. So it was kind of a surprise. And actually yesterday someone told me that it's up, that this particular photo is at Moonmock, Moonmock at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I haven't actually managed to go and see it, but I've looked at photos of it online and yeah, it's just strikingly similar and also different. I mean, what I think is striking is really the change of perspective. You already described it's kind of you're looking down on yourself, whereas she in her um, photograph is really looked at mm -hmm. from the opposite. So it's much more about the objectification of womanhood. And I think that's also what makes it to an icon of feminism, whereas you're talking more about what you described the subjective and the very emotional insight. I mean, looking at your over, I think that this moment of reusing settings or contexts can be envisioned in many of your works and very often you use them to transform spaces. I'd like to go 
back and mention maybe one other work you've done at the Kunstverein in Munich, this Impressions, a series of work where you use big sheets of paper with photograms of windows and glass surfaces. In Munich you used photographs of, of the windows in your studio in New York, if I'm right. So it's again also an indexical uh, record. And what I'm curious about is really how you merge these two spaces again. What is it that comes together at that moment? Did you just say my studio in New York? Mm -hmm. It was my apartment in New York. It was my domestic environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... The works, the Kunstverein in Munich, were made, they were, so a photogram is made without a camera, obviously, and the photo paper's held up quite close to the windows on the inside at night, and it's just exposed directly to the light, whatever light is coming through the window at night. So the scale of the window depicted in the photogram is pretty close to the actual scale of the window. I exposed them onto sheets of photo paper that were the height of the windows in the Kunstverein. Then every three panels of these sheets was the width of one of the windows of the Kunstverein. So they were they were made to the scale of the windows in the gallery, but they were of the windows in my home. So yeah, there was this kind of mapping of one space onto another. And they were hung under on, on these very tall walls at the Kunstverein um, underneath the windows in the room. So again, there was a very direct relationship between the two kinds of window. What I see is that there is a strong connex between that work and ceiling analysis in the way you create an ambivalence between the private and the public, the interiority and the exteriority. So I was just really wondering about this strategy on how you bring together these different rooms and Yeah, I'm not really sure what's whether it's a question or <laughs> an observation. Maybe we take that from a different angle. One thing that would interest me if you would regard these works as site-specific or what kind of term would you use? I mean, how do you think of the institutional space? The, the kind of specificity my works have to a site is very temporary. They're not permanent. They also are contingent on on my research based on intuition rather than my research based on historic fact. Or although I'm, there may be a little bit of research that's done that's based on historic fact, but some of the decisions I make are very much made on the basis of how it feels to be in a space and making observations of my own about where the walls, the ceiling, the windows are, and and how one might navigate the space and what what the navigation of the space might mean, like what kinds of meanings it might have in terms of questions that I'm interested in. So it's not site-specific in the sense of trying to say something, I, I don't know, that that's kind of culturally, I don't know how to put this, but that's culturally relevant to the site necessarily, mm -hmm. but more to do with like how how I might be processing it myself. So it becomes like another, almost like another material in the work. 
the work always has a very precise relationship to the actual coordinates in the in the gallery room. I mean, I'm always thinking very, very, thinking a lot about the position of the work and how it's encountered by a viewer and what it's adjacent to, what what other parts of the room or parts of the building it's adjacent to. A lot of my work is actually made in response to a place, to to the exhibition site. I think what I'm trying to say is that I'm not necessarily trying to say something about the site, but the work comes from me experiencing the site. Yeah, that makes absolutely sense. And I think it's a very nice notion on site-specificity, apart from the kind of art historical <laughs> term. And one thing you already mentioned, it, that's the perception of the viewer. I mean, how do you... How do you imagine the visitor's perception in the space? I'm hoping that people will walk in and feel that there's an encounter with an object that they can't really avoid, that it's right there and they have to figure out how they're going to walk underneath it or around it. And that there's a real difference between standing underneath it and standing to the side where you can look at it with a bit more different distance. And I'm hoping that, you know, there's very little in the room. Actually, one thing we haven't mentioned is the lighting, which isn't a work, but it is quite specific all the same. And it, the way the, the exhibition's lit is with natural light from the window. And then when it's dark, well, natural light from the window and three lights that are sitting on the floor. But when it's dark, all you have is the three lights. And the lights are pointing at the walls, not at the work. So... The light bounces off the white walls and illuminates the space. Even though it's they're not a work, um, they. I think it's kind of important that I like I like what it means that the light is not shining directly at the work. It's it's pointing at the walls, and then what you get is a kind of incidental light. And I think. The other thing I'm hoping people would notice is, as you said before, the difference in scale between the two works and that they're, they're very different kinds of work, but they're clearly in a very strong relationship and you have to think about what they might mean together. And that might not be clear initially what they, what, what, what they mean next to one another. And I guess that's, that's a space that I'm leaving open for the viewer to navigate themselves. I, from my perspective, can just say that I experience this as a kind of extreme kindness towards the viewer, because I do think that you have this confrontation when you enter the space, that the ceiling is kind of just in front of you, but it doesn't become overwhelming. There is this offer to step aside and look at it from a distance and look at it as an object, So, and that you leave this choice to the viewer I think is a kind of yeah way to take the viewer very seriously and also take him as a person very or her as a person very seriously and that's something I really appreciate which is just my personal take on this and I think that also enables one to yeah partly follow your kind of decisions in producing this work which you've explained to us in a very beautiful way and I'm extremely grateful for that. So thank you really, Patricia, for, for this conversation. Thank you. 
session. Podcast Artists. The production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the Dorotheum.